No jokes today. You'll have to come tonight to have a laugh at church. And that'll be a good thing, but not in this talk. Let me pray. Father, open our eyes and our hearts that we might want to see Jesus and follow him and give our lives to his kingdom. We ask in his name. Amen. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Obviously not. It was 2,000 years ago. It was long ago and far away. But we do know what happened, don't we? We have the Bible that tells us what happened. Indeed, we have a cross on the very top of our little steeple over there because we know that he was crucified and that's what Christians have, crosses. Um, And there's a whole history of paintings and pictures of those events. And many of you would have watched perhaps Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I haven't watched it. I think it will be mess with my brain too much because it's apparently very brutal. So I'm kind of grateful that I wasn't there when they crucified Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful I wasn't at Gallipoli. Would have been awful. Who'd want to be at the foot of the cross? Who'd want to see that brutality? Who'd want to see the torture? Who would want to witness the agony and the injustice and the helplessness and the darkness falling? But some people were there. There were Roman soldiers. They scourged Jesus. They mocked him. They put nails through his hands and his feet onto a wooden cross. And then they played dice underneath his suffering for his clothes. Awful men. Wicked men. And yet even one of them, the centurion, when Jesus died, said, Surely this man was the son of God. There were others. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders rubbing their hands, glad of the denies. Our plot succeeded. We're the victors. But even amongst them, there were people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who took Jesus' body down from the cross and placed him in a tomb, placed it in a tomb, his own expensive tomb. And then there were the citizens of Jerusalem there, perhaps many of them, who shouted, crucify, crucify. But amongst those citizens, there were the disciples, there was the mother of Jesus, there was the women who followed Jesus, Confused and disillusioned, and then who else was there? Well, actually, there's two thieves nailed to two crosses next to Jesus. Guilty and suffering and dying. Were you there? I don't know, but they certainly were. Those two men, maybe in that system of justice, they should have been there. 
I wasn't there. You weren't there, but our spiritual, our little song suggests, at least for the writer of that song, in some sense, you should have been there when they crucified my Lord. Oh, look, I left my phone down there. Time for a walk. Because my phone, it's a very clever phone. It now does all the slide flickings and it gives me absolute control. It's not just that I'm attached to my phone, although I'm dealing with those issues. One joke. (laughs) Uh, We start, we're doing our series, which is called A New Home, from Acts chapter 1 and 2. And today, the passage we're looking at tells us what it means to be a Christian. A Christian, here's a way of saying it, a Christian is someone who can say with a sincere and sorrowful heart, yet with gratitude and hope, I was there when they crucified my Lord. And he was there for me. And because of this, because I was there and because he was there for me, I've actually changed address. I've moved out of the old and I've moved in to the new. We're at the start of Acts. The disciples, it's not long after Jesus' death and resurrection, they're told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. We're 50 days after the Passover feast when Jesus was crucified. When the disciples gather and this is sudden, loud wind and tongues of fire descend upon people and they start talking in other languages so people from all over the world can hear what they're saying in their own native language. And people notice and they draw near. And so we read in verse 12, Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, stands up and he explains what's happened. This is a new day. There is a new covenant coming now as God's Holy Spirit is poured out upon those early followers of Jesus. And in that, we have a new home for God's people. Because of what Jesus has done. The foundation of this new home is his resurrection. And Johnny spoke about this last week. And Peter uses two Psalms from the Old Testament to explain the priority of the resurrection And what Jesus has done. And then he finishes with a very clear and simple point. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Lord, and we sometimes say Christ, the Greek word. Lord and anointed king. This is the new reality of the new day, of the new house, that we have a new king. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, has come to set up his eternal rule of peace and righteousness. The final quote from that Paul Peter refers to is actually from Psalm 110, which is a psalm about God's Messiah. 
And he quotes it here. He says, For David, King David, did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, this is King David, The Lord said to my Lord, says King David, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110. Now Jesus, we're told, is Lord. He is that Lord. And so one of the things this implies is you don't want to be his enemy because if you are his enemy, you will become his footstool. That's what the psalm says, which is very interesting, but it's actually intensely personal because the Messiah, the Lord of Psalm 110, has been crucified. He's been executed. And who crucified this Lord? Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you yourselves crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It is an emphatic statement. You did it. Not Pontius Pilate, not Herod. Not the scribes and the Pharisees, not the Roman soldiers. You killed God's Messiah. You are culpable. You executed King David's Lord. You are the enemy. You are footstool fodder. You have brought judgment upon yourselves. It says the same thing back in verse 23. In Peter's message, he says, This man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You're guilty. You're culpable. Now, I think it's just as well I wasn't there listening to Peter's sermon because I would have had this righteous indignation rise within me and said, I wasn't there. How dare you accuse me of killing the Messiah? I didn't do it. I'd be arguing with them. You see, it's 50 days since the Passover feast. It is now what they call the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And people came from all over, Jews came from all over the world into Jerusalem for this festival, this Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks festival. The city is swollen with people. If you go back to verse 10 in chapter 2, it's full of people from Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. The place is packed with people from all over the world. Most of those people were not there 50 days earlier. They weren't there. And Peter says to them, you crucified the Lord. You're implicated. You're guilty and crazily, no one, I'm not there because nobody argues. 
Nobody defends himself. Nobody gets cranky and starts blaming others and making excuses. Instead, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Rather than excuses, there's this deep sense of responsibility. I am one of the Messiah's enemies of Psalm 110. I don't want to be a footstool. I, along with wicked men, put the Messiah to death. I am God's enemies. enemy. I live in the palace of rebellion. I am guilty. I'm cut to the heart. Well, that's how they felt, but at least you and I weren't there, were we? Because as I said, it was 2,000 years ago. We're not culpable in Jesus' death. So let me ask, would you be considered Jesus' enemy, footstool fodder? Well, let me ask this, do you reject God's rightful rule established through his king? And if you were there, would you have been any different to those citizens of Jerusalem? Would you have crucified the Son of God? Is this sermon of Peter for somebody else? Or is it for you this morning? See, the Bible says we're all sinners, to use that phrase. That is, we all fall short of God's glory. We are all God's enemies by nature. We are hostile to his rule. And we might repudiate that notion. <laughs> I've been hearing this this week. How could you call me a sinner? How could you say that I should be subject to judgment? You cannot say that. That's incredibly offensive. We have to pass rules so we don't tell people that they're facing judgment. Under God. And what about this idea of sin? Isn't that just an archaic notion of control to get people to feel guilty so we can tell them how they should live so that we stay boss? How can you say, I'm a sinner, I'm a good person? And I want to say, just let's stop for a second. And get rid of all the mud that we cloud things with and look at our own heart. The incipient pride. The perennial selfishness. The greed, the hostility, the lust, the envy, the rude, rude, rude things you say, particularly to those you know and love the most. The way you mock others who don't fit with your standards. And to top it all off, the most wicked of all, this continual sense of self-righteousness. I am a good person. And you are not because you annoy me or because you offend me. But I am a good person. What, what, what deceit, what lies we tell ourselves. Because we don't want to tell ourselves that we're sinners, that we're God's enemies, that somehow we're accountable. Sin is simply the rejection of God and his purposes and his rule and his ways. 
It is to enthrone the self. And it comes to us all so readily we hardly even notice. If we are to be masters of our own destiny, then we must ditch God. You may not like the word, but the Bible calls that sin. All of us are the enemies of Psalm 110. We're all footstool fodder and we live in the palace of rebellion and therefore we are culpable. We have a massive problem. We were there crucifying the Lord. And yet it's also true to say that God was there. Indeed, God is responsible. Verse 23, if we may go back. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The Father sent the Son to the cross so that he might die in our place, bear our punishment for sin, and save us from the consequences, from the judgment. So that he might make, might make us his enemies, his friend. So that we can move from the palace of rebellion to the mansion of his kingdom and glory. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He bore our shame. He bore the consequences of our rebellion. He gave his life for us. Romans 4.25 says it wonderfully. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification that we might be declared righteous and holy. And it's personal. You know, we often use that phrase, it's personal. So-and-so did this, you know, and I'm really unhappy and it's personal. So I'm going to get revenge. It's personal. You know, with God it's personal. It's personal grace. It's personal love. He sent his son to bear the weight of your rebellion and it's personal because he loves you. Personally. That we, his natural enemies, that we who crucified his son might be his friends and know his love. What led Jesus to the cross? Two simple answers. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's love sent Jesus to the cross. What sent Jesus to, cross? to the cross in you with the help of wicked men? Put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I sent him to the cross. You sent Jesus to the cross. So when Peter says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, he is talking about you and me. We are culpable. As we often sing, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So were you there? I'm asking, do you feel the weight that these people on that Pentecost morning heard? Were you there? Because I do not believe there is any more important question than the question they asked. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And as they said to Peter and to the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We're culpable. What are we going to do? We're guilty. What are we going to do? 
We're accountable. We're under judgment. What shall we do? A Christian is someone who's moved from the house or the palace of rebellion into the house of the glory of God. Who has gone from being God's enemy to being God's friend, who is now at peace with God, who is reconciled with God. And here is the answer. Here is how you move out and how you move in. Peter replied, What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first thing Peter does is call for repentance which is, has been said is the first word of the gospel. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness calling people back to God and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the first thing he said. And then he had a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Turn around. Jesus, when he first began to teach, he came and he started preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is Peter on the birthday of the church as the Holy Spirit's poured out, as people are wondering, What shall we do because we're accountable? And Peter says, The first thing Peter says is, Repent. Which is to turn around. To admit that I have been going in the wrong direction. I am a person of rebellion and I am going to turn from that and go in the right direction. Go in God's direction. I am going to move out of the old house, the palace of rebellion, so I can move into the kingdom and the mansion of God's glory. Moving out so I can go to my forever home where Jesus is Lord. And if repentance is moving out, faith is moving in. That's the flip side of the coin. If you're going to repent, you will exercise faith. It's moving out of the old house and into the new house. You come to Jesus as Lord and you trust yourself to him and you wear for yourselves his death and resurrection. I have died to sin. Penalties paid in Jesus. I have been raised to eternal new life in Jesus. My hope is secure because I trust him, because I've entrusted myself to him. He is my Lord. And his death and resurrection counts for me. And the old is gone and the slate is clean and the new has come and I'm filled with God's spirit in a new birth. And how is that expressed? Well, the way we're told to express that in the New Testament is through baptism. It's a wonderful, wonderful, powerful symbol, which ideally is best done, I think, with the whole of the body, where the whole of the body is cleansed by water as we trust. We sort of say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. And as I trust you, I am going to die with you. And your death covers my sin. And as I am raised to new life with you, I am washed clean. And it's not just a part of me, Lord. It's the whole of me for the whole of my life. What a wonderful, wonderful symbol baptism is. And every time you in the New Testament you see some people repenting, they are baptized almost straight away. 
I'm hoping for more baptisms. I would love people to be baptised straight away. I love it when we get baptised in church services. But if you want to get baptised today because you've repented and followed Jesus, let me know. We'll baptise today. It'll be so exciting. Peter encourages the crowd. He says, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is for everyone, both near and far. This is, there's no distinction in this forgiveness. There's no distinction in this new life. You know, it's even for people who live on the northwestern line of Sydney, which is so long ago and so far away from those events. It's even for people who live in the Hills District or who live on the North Shore. It's even for you. God saves. And the great miracle of this day, yes, there were the tongues of fire. Yes, there was a rushing loud wind and the language miracle. But the greatest work of God on this morning comes after Peter finishes his message. Here is the power. Here is the movement of the Holy Spirit. With many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them. He said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. (laughs) 2,000 years later. I feel that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm pleading and I'm urging and saying, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now that is a work of God. 3,000 are cut to the heart. 3,000 people repent and express their faith in baptism. 3,000 people recognize I was there 50 days ago. I might have been back in Parthia. I've now jumped on a boat to come to Jerusalem for this special festival. But actually, I was there crucifying Jesus and I need forgiveness. 50,000 people move out of the house of rebellion. The palace of rebellion and into the mansion of God's glory. Not everybody wants to move house. It's hard to move house. It's a big, big change. Sometimes people get old and they can't really survive well on their own and everybody's saying you need to move out into somewhere else where you can be better looked after. It's really hard. Big change, but if they don't, it can be really bad. Sometimes in Australia you have bushfires and the bushfires come and some days they're just wicked and awful. They're deadly. And the warnings go, move out, move out. You're going to lose everything. And every time that happens, and it's really bad, and thankfully we don't have them that bad, you always hear stories after the matter of someone who decided they were going to stay and fight with their garden hose. And the fire takes everything and they perish. Because they didn't want to move out and heed the warnings. They thought they could stand on their own. Not everybody wants to be forgiven by God. Not everyone wants to call Jesus Lord. Not everyone wants to recognize that they're a sinner and that they're not righteous and that they have a problem. But there's no other way by which you can be saved. 
from the coming wrath and share in eternal life. God has sent his very son to pay the price for us, to save us from sin so we may escape. Peter says, let yourself be saved from this corrupt generation. Today the choice is the same and the call is the same. And though I am not an apostle and though I get many, many things wrong, in this public space I stand in the same place where Peter does. And I say, repent. And be baptized. And put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Move out. And move in. So that you may find a new home. A new place to belong where you truly belong. That you may come to see yourself as a son and a daughter of the living God. And be secure eternally in his family. Let me pray. Father God, we um, ask for a work of your Holy Spirit that can do more than we can do on our own. We ask, Lord, those of us who know you, for you to work powerfully by your Spirit to open hearts that have been closed to you, that they might repent and be baptized and know forgiveness of sin and life eternal. We ask, Father, for a work of the Holy Spirit and those of us who do know you, that we may affirm... Jesus is our Lord, and that we might live in that truth with even greater passion. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.